Welcome to the Vision Church Podcast. We're so thankful that you're taking some time today to listen. We pray that this week's message challenges you to press in deeper with your pursuit of Christ. Our mission at Vision Church is to go and make disciples. You can help us in this mission by rating this podcast and sharing it with the world via social media. We want to reach the lost by raising up the found. Thank you again for tuning in today and enjoy the message. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me this afternoon to 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Thank you all so much for being here this afternoon, choosing the 1230 service, and even the Panthers are playing in town, but y'all made the right decision because, well, they may not win anyway. All right, 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> so then since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude that he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you've suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. You have already had enough of the past evil things that godless people enjoy. Their immorality and lust and their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties and their terrible worship of idols. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do, so they slander you. But remember that they will have to face God who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. This is why the good news was preached to those who are now dead. So although they were destined to die like all people, they now live forever with God in the spirit. Verse seven, the end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Most important of all, continue to show your deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. Cheerfully share your home with those who are in need of a meal or a place to stay. God has given each of you a gift of his great diversity of spiritual gifts. Use them to encourage one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Then do it with all strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me now. Father, we exalt you and we are grateful for the sweetness of your spirit in this place. I ask that right now you would be strong in my weakness and make ready the hearts of men to receive the word of truth. Help us to see what the spirit is revealing to the church and Lord move in truth and in power. It's in Jesus name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. So today we're continuing our series uh, that's a chapter by chapter study of the books of First and Second Peter. The name of the series is called Church in the Wild. There's a reason for that. You'll find out next week. The context here is that Peter is the author. This is the same Peter that walked with Jesus for three years. He saw every aspect of his life, his ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection. Throughout this book, Peter is writing to believers who are scattered throughout Asia Minor. 
and they are beginning to face persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. He writes with an anticipation that the suffering is going to escalate. We have the benefit of history to look back and see that that is exactly what happened under the merciless persecution of the Roman emperor Nero, who was demon-possessed many times over. He set out to literally extinguish Christianity from the New Testament, or excuse me, the New Testament church from the Roman Empire. That was his mission. He martyred Christians by the tens of thousands. But in the midst of this suffering and persecution, Peter does not write a word of comfort. He doesn't write something to them saying, hey, it's gonna be all right, just endure. No, instead he commissions them to live a holy life in a hostile world. He tells them now more than ever, it matters that you live a life that brings glory to Jesus Christ. Stand firm in your faith. These words transcend history and the ages, and they speak directly into our life today. We're going to go verse by verse, and I will warn you, normally I go verse by verse, you can follow me. Today I'm going to be skipping around a little bit, uh, but it's all right there in chapter four. We're going to start in the first two verses, and the major point is separate from sin. Tell your neighbor with some attitude, say, separate from sin. Husbands, be careful. <laughs> Additional context here is that this persecuted group of Christians, they were still struggling with sin in their life. They still weren't the perfect image that they wanted to be. They were still wrestling with former sins and addictions that had held them captive for decades. I want you to understand today that the moment you place your faith in Jesus, the moment you repent of your sin and you trust in his finished work on the cross, instantly you are forgiven, you are redeemed, you are covered in the blood of Jesus, and he justifies you by faith the moment that you pray. Anybody grateful for his salvation? That it is a free gift to sinners. And our salvation is not dependent on our perfection, but it is by grace through faith. You got saved in an instant, but being sanctified will take the rest of your life. The word sanctified or sanctification is a fancy theological term that means separating from sin. Now, I know that when you came to Christ, if you were anything like me, you probably thought the moment you gave your life to Christ, like that was it. Like you crossed the finish line, you made it. But actually, that's not the end of your journey. That's the beginning. And he didn't just save you so that you will cling on and hold on till you make it to the sweet by and by, glory, hallelujah in heaven. No, he saved you for a purpose and he wants to sanctify you, making you more like Jesus today than you were yesterday. He's got a plan and a purpose for your life. Sanctification is separating from sin. I'm drawing closer to Jesus and further from my past and the more I trust in him, the more I become like him, and I may not be the man I wanna be today, but I'm far from who I used to be, and it's because his spirit is at work in my life. Listen, sanctification is not like a stock market straight into the right. 
It's got a lot of ups and downs, highs and lows. Even the saints fall sometimes. But as you follow Jesus, your highs will be higher and even your lows will be higher as you look back and see his spirit separating you from sin and making you more into his image and likeness. He is the potter. We are the clay. He's molding us more into his image. All right? So this is what Peter is calling these early Christians to. He's calling them to live a holy life in a hostile world. And though we're saved instantly, our sanctification takes the process of our life. Now, notice I told you they were struggling with sin. I don't know about you, but when I was an early Christian, I thought that the moment I gave my life to Christ, like I was gonna be pretty much sinless from there out. Like I thought my life was gonna be 75 and sunny, no more problems, no more mistakes, and that lasted about three hours. Can I get a witness? Like anybody else, right? Okay, you're holier than me, okay. But like, and here's what the enemy does. He takes our struggle since becoming a Christian and then he accuses us and he says, well, you're not really saved. I mean, you're not really born again. After all, a Christian wouldn't have thought that. A real Christian wouldn't have said that or done that. I mean, you, you're not really a child of God. And say never lied to you too. But I've come to shine some light into that darkness and tell you that your struggle with sin is the evidence that you are born again. Tell your neighbor the struggle is the evidence. And I've said this many times here, but about the time I'm tired of saying something is about the time you start believing me. The struggle is the evidence. Now, some of you are like, no, nah, I don't know about this preacher. I'm sorry. Listen, before Christ, there was no struggle. Before Christ, you sinned and that's just who you were. You jumped head first, you cannonballed into sin, like it just was who you, you were synonymous. But when you came to Christ, there's something that has changed on the inside of you and you can't enjoy sin like you used to. There is now a conviction, there is a tension, there is a struggle where you don't want to live that life anymore. Now you wanna please God. Paul said in the book of Romans, the thing I wanna do, I don't do, and the thing I don't wanna do, I do, but it is the sin that wars within me, okay? The fact that there is a struggle, the fact that there is a longing to be more like Jesus, that is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in you and he is drawing you more into his likeness. Can I get somebody to praise the Lord, right? Like, and I gotta be honest, like the gospel has never been about sinless perfection from a Christian. Like the whole point of the gospel is you need a savior because you're not good enough. Now listen to me. I want you to hear me loud and clear. For the rest of our life, as long as we're in these fleshly bodies, we will struggle against sin. But there's a difference between people who make mistakes and a lifestyle of sin. What Peter is saying to the church is, Separate yourself from the lifestyle, the addiction, the habit. Separate yourself from sin's reign and dominion over your life. Though you may never be sinless, you can be free from sin's reign over you. 
this is the word of the Lord. Anybody believe what I'm saying? Like three people golf clapping and they're right. They're right. As he addresses this, although we'll never be perfect on this side of eternity, we can be free from this lifestyle of sin. He's saying, don't make excuses for your sin. Oh, well, you know, I'll always be a sinner, so might as well go ahead and do it anyway. No, no, don't justify and excuse your sin. Run from it. Overcome it through his power and his spirit at work. So that leads me perfectly to the next question. So how do I separate from sin? I'm so glad you asked that question. It sets me up perfectly for this next point. Right on time. By the way, I know these jokes work. I've used them three times already. They're tested and proven. By the time you come to 1230, I know it's funny. How do I separate from sin? Look, he told us in verse one. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had. Tell your neighbor, arm yourself. He uses military terminology that we are to arm ourselves with the same attitude Jesus had as he faced the cross. Arming yourself speaks to the battle, the spiritual struggle that you face. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. You are a spirit being that exists in a mortal body. There is a spiritual struggle happening for the souls of humanity, and this struggle happens within. We must arm ourselves with the same attitude Jesus had when he looked at the cross. One more just side note. The reason he says this is because victory over a lifestyle of sin starts in your mind. Tell your neighbor the one you've been ignoring and say it starts in your mind. All the introverts hate me right now. They're like, I'm not doing it. It's good for you to talk. It is. It's, talk to your neighbor. Okay, it's good. This is therapy. It's good for you. Okay? That's a different sermon. That's a different sermon. Victory begins in the mind. You know why? Because sin, before it's ever manifest in our actions, it's first conceived in our mind. You don't do, you don't wake up one day and just randomly do crazy stuff. No, before you had the affair, before you embezzled the money, before you lied, cheated, stole. No, before you, long before you did it, you thought it. You imagined it. You replayed it in your mind over and over. And eventually, if you give place to the enemy, what happens in your mind is manifest in your actions. So he says, you gotta arm yourself with the same attitude Jesus had when he faced the cross if you wanna separate from sin and its addiction and its reign over your life. So what is the attitude of Christ? Two things. Number one, the attitude of Christ is that he made up his mind before he suffered. Jesus made up his mind before he was tempted and before he suffered. I wanna illustrate this just a little bit clearer. Jesus was not responding or reacting to our sinful condition through his suffering. It wasn't like, well, this is a touch and go situation and we'll see how it plays out. You know, if I'm feeling like, 
you know, doing, no, no, no. He is the Lamb of God slain from the foundations of the world. He already knew his assignment and what he came to do. And long before he ever suffered, long before they mocked him, ridiculed him, and beat his body beyond human recognition, he had already made up his mind before the suffering, this is who I am, this is my purpose, and I'm gonna obey the Father with all that I am. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember? Moments before Christ was betrayed to Caiaphas, he invited the disciples to go and pray. You remember, they were like, yeah, we got you, Jesus. And then like three minutes in, they were all asleep. And he said, indeed, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Can anybody relate? Yeah. But what did Jesus pray in the garden? He said, listen, if there be any other way, let this cup of suffering pass from me. Church, feel that for a minute. He literally said, if there's any other way to save fallen humanity, then please do it. If the law could save them, then let the law redeem them. If their good works and their effort could save them, if there's any other way, let it be. But then he said, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus made up his mind before the suffering began. When scripture commissions us to live a holy life in a hostile world and to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, he is telling you, you've got to make up your mind who you are and who's your master and who you're going to serve right now before the temptation and before the suffering and before the darkness envelops you. Make up your mind right now. Like, let's just put this into practical application, right? If you wait till you're tempted to decide who you're gonna serve, it's too late. If you're waiting until you're Netflix and chilling, browsing the selection, if you're waiting till then, it's too late. You're afraid to laugh, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> Look at me confused, you know what I'm saying. If you wait till you're, till you're three weeks into this conversation in the DMs that you know you shouldn't be having, it's already too late. If you wait till you're at the wild party to then resist temptation, you already waited too long. If you're gonna separate from sin, you gotta make up your mind before the temptation presents itself. So today is the day to make up your mind and choose you this day who you're going to serve. And if the Lord is God, then serve him. If Baal is God, then serve him. But get off the fence and make up your mind. This is the word. You got to make up your mind first. Hey, one more thought here. It's not a one-time decision. It's a daily decision to follow Jesus. Like, I've talked to some people that were like, hey, you know what? Like, I resisted the Lord on April 3rd, 2019, so I'm good. No, uh, good for you then, but this is a daily decision. Every day, you gotta make up your mind, am I gonna follow Jesus, and am I gonna live in the spirit, or am I gonna follow the passionate inclinations and impulses of the flesh? You have to choose every day. That's why at Vision Church, we're always prompting you to read the Bible. 
the first thing. I know you thought I was being legalistic, but reading the Bible first thing in the morning, it begins to arm you with the attitude of Christ before your day unfolds. Now listen, you don't have to get all legalistic on me and read 17 chapters. Pastor Brett might do that. But if you're more like me, seven verses will do. Somebody right now is like, he only reads seven verses? Well, some of y'all don't even read at all. Somebody pull up in your driveway. Good afternoon. It's not about the quantity. It's about the quality. Is you afraid to amen that? But I'm preaching. I'm, I'm really talking to you. And by the way, stop getting all legalistic. Well, did you read 17 verses today? Just calm down. But here's what I'm trying to tell you. If you start your day in his presence, if you start your day in his word, you are arming yourself with the mind of Christ and you've already set your heart in alignment to follow him. So before the temptation comes, my heart is already postured in worship. So just a healthy, friendly challenge. Before, when you wake up and you grab the phone, because that's the first thing you do, I know. Before you grab it and you start scrolling to find the bottom of Instagram or to check your email or your text, how about you just start in his word? Just take a moment to just start in his word. Be intentional. Arm yourself with the attitude of Christ. So not only did he make up his mind before he suffered or before he was tempted, Jesus was also willing to suffer. He was willing to sacrifice. Tell your neighbor he was willing. See, this is part of the struggle. And if I'm being honest, one of the dangers of Western Christianity is we've watered down the gospel, we've cheapened the message, and we don't challenge people to actually be disciples of the Lord. We don't. We tried to make it easy so that we won't offend anybody and so that they'll keep coming and keep giving. Well, excuse me, but I'm not here to please you or impress you. My responsibility is to give you God's word. Otherwise, your blood will be on my hands. And I didn't write the Bible. You didn't come to hear my opinion. You came to hear the word of the living God. Jesus And arming yourself with the mind of Christ and his attitude is not only do we make up our mind before trouble comes, we also make up our mind, we count the cost, and we're willing to sacrifice, we're willing to die to the flesh. In Western Christianity, we want everything easy and we want everything fast. And I'm gonna say something to you and I pray you lean into this. Your salvation is free perfectly free. You can't purchase it. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do to obtain it. It's free. But your sanctification is going to cost you dearly. I'm just going to say it one more time for everybody in the back. Your salvation is free. The moment you repent and accept Jesus by faith, you are saved, forgiven. You confess Jesus as the Lord, believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You are washed in the blood of Jesus. Your sins forgiven. It's free. But if you want to be a disciple and you want to follow Jesus with your life and you want to be sanctified and separated from sin, it's going to cost you. 
It's gonna be painful. There are gonna be relationships you're gonna have to sacrifice. There are gonna have to be some contacts you delete. There's gonna have to be some things that die in your flesh in order to leave the world behind and embrace the person of Jesus. It's like three of you golf clapping, but I'm telling the truth. By the way, when you clap here, it's not for me. I, I, I don't deserve your response. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't write the Bible. But the scripture does deserve a response from the earth where we praise him and bless his mighty name. Yeah. I had, I had some people tell me, you know, that they're like this church is a little too rowdy for me. You know what I mean? All the yelling and you, you excited. Well, you might not like heaven then. We're just trying to get you ready. We're just trying to get you primed up and ready. Do you really think the angels are up there golf clapping? Like, Pretty good, Jesus. No, are you kidding me? Heaven roars with his praise. Oh, it does. Every, every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. Heaven's not going to feel like a funeral. It's going to be a celebration. So might as well get, and people say, well, you know, I like to worship quiet. Okay, good for you. Um, well, you can, hey, hey, no, for real. You can worship quiet. That's fine. But you can't praise quiet. Praise. There's no such thing as a silent praise. <laughs> you can't. Man, praise is out loud. Are you willing to suffer? You willing to take up the cross and follow him? Because if you're going to be a disciple, you got to be willing to die to you. Putting on the mind of Christ, arming ourselves with his attitude means I'm counting the cost and I'm willing to die to this world. Moving on, there's purpose in suffering. There's purpose in suffering. You know, we spend a great deal of time today running from pain and running from problems and suffering. But the truth is, Scripture teaches us that there is purpose in our pain. I want you to hear me. I am not saying that God afflicts you, but I am saying there's nothing that happens in heaven or on earth without him allowing it. He is not the source of your pain. But nothing happened. He's the king of glory. He's sovereign. He sees the end from the beginning. So there's not a thing that has happened to you that God has not allowed, at the very least. Why? There is purpose in our pain. That's what Peter's saying to the church that's being persecuted. There's a purpose here. There's a reason. In rejection and in suffering, we are united with Christ Jesus. We become closer to Jesus through suffering. I know you're afraid to amen it. You're like, I don't like this sermon. Well, uh, let me just put it in modern English for you. You ready? When life is going good, 75 and sunny, according to plan, you've got commas in your bank account. Some of you maybe don't know what that is like, but anyway, like <laughs> if, if, you, if you see a comma, you're normally feeling pretty good. And... Um, when life is good, we tend to withdraw from the Lord. It's human nature. We're like, hey, thank you, Lord. I appreciate that. Now I'm gonna go do my thing, but I'll see you later. Appreciate you. You know what suffering does? It brings us right back into his loving arms. You know what pain does? It draws us right back into proximity with Jesus. When you get the bad diagnosis, when you get the bad news, when you experience the frustration, you know what you do? You run right back into the loving arms of the Father. Your pain serves a purpose, and it unites us with Christ, 
and it's meant to bring us closer to him. And if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. In our suffering, we become united with him and we know him in a better way. Philippians 1.29 says, for you have not only been given the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. I had to read that like three different times when I first came across that in the Bible. The privilege of suffering. Imagine that. The privilege of suffering. Why would Paul use such words when he writes to the Philippians? The, there's a privilege to suffer. Because you have to remember that this world hated Jesus. When he came, the creator of heaven and earth stepped into the world he created. You would think we would have accepted him. You think we would have received him. But instead, we nailed him to a rugged cross. Jesus said, this world hates me. And if you follow me, it will hate you too. Paul says it's a privilege to suffer for Christ. Why? Because when the world rejects you, when the world persecutes you, it is the validation that you look like your savior. I'm preaching. I'm trying to talk to you now. See, it's the validation that you are a light in a dark place. And darkness hates the light. Have you ever been sound asleep in the dark room and somebody flips the light on? You want to just drop kick them? Of course not. You're holier than me. But, but darkness hates the light. You, you, gotta, you gotta die to self. You gotta realize that you can't have the world in heaven too. And if you're really gonna follow Jesus, you have to be okay with people rejecting you. The sooner you're okay with that, the sooner you become a dangerous disciple in his hand. Because see, when you've already died to you, they can't kill you. When you already died to you, you become fearless. When you, when you see, they can't kill a man who already died. And a confused, lost world needs a bold, fearless church. You know what else suffering does? It realigns our priorities. Things that we used to think were important diminish when we walk through pain. Philippians 3, 7. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. Church, that's powerful. See, you used to think the house in that zip code was valuable. You used to think the respect and opinions of people was valuable. You used to think making this certain salary was valuable. But then when you went through a storm, you quickly realize and reassess. Life gets a new perspective and pain serves a purpose to show you what you used to think was valuable is nothing. It's garbage. If just I, you can have the world. Just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. He's all I need. He's my, he's my prize, my reward. Suffering and pain serves a purpose. By the way, 
First Peter 4.12 says this, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all of the world. The same fire that destroys wood, hay, and stubble purifies gold and precious metal. The same storm that destroys unbelievers purifies and strengthens the saints. The scripture says it rains on the just and the unjust alike. Just because you're saved don't mean you're exempt from trouble. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but rejoice because I've overcome the world. But here's the difference. To an unbeliever, tests, trial, suffering, and pain, it causes them to get bitter towards God, and it ultimately destroys many of them. But to us, who our faith is in Christ, the same storm only purifies me. It only sanctifies me. And what happened to me actually happened for me to make me more like Jesus today than I was yesterday. It didn't happen to you. It happened for you. And I'm going to say something. I'm going to say something. I don't know what you've been through. Paul said, we see through a glass darkly now, but one day we'll see him and us as he is and as we are. In other words, on this side of eternity, you'll never truly understand why everything has happened the way that it has. But you don't need to understand the why. You need to understand who is in control. I don't need to know what's in my future. I just need to know who holds it. And we can stand assured that in his presence one day as we look back and we see the mystery of life unfold, we will truly see and testify of the goodness of God Almighty, that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has made all things beautiful in his time. And if your situation isn't beautiful yet, God is not finished. He's not finished. What was meant to destroy you purifies you and strengthens you. Almost done. You got time for a couple more real quick? I appreciate that response. Normally, y'all just leave me hanging right there. So I appreciate it. First Peter 4, 17. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin in God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news. And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to the godless sinners? Tell your neighbor, judgment is coming. So, I wanna, rem I wanna as we're closing the sermon, I want you to fix your eyes on this text and realize that in 1 Peter chapter four, he says, you are living in the last days. The end of the world will soon come. Now, people have mocked that for 2,000 years. They've said, well, for 2,000 years, you know, we're still here. 
Second Peter is going to address that. It says that the Lord is not being slow on his promise to return. As some may say, he actually tarries out of mercy because if he were to come now and split the clouds in glory, there would be a great multitude who would die and perish eternally without him. He waits so that the lost can repent and come to Christ. But make no mistake about it. We are living in the last days. He could tarry for another 2,000 years, or he could come before today is finished. The point is that we should live like tomorrow may never come. We should live with an urgency to run from sin and run to Jesus and share his precious message with urgency. And if we were in the last days 2,000 years ago, I believe you could make a case that we're in the last minutes or seconds today. Jesus is coming again. But I want you to look at this. He says to a people persecuted, he says, this suffering you're enduring right now, that is your fiery trial. But this is as bad as it's ever gonna be. Because on the other side of this suffering awaits eternal glory. I want you to hear this. Peter is saying to the born-again Christians, this life here and now is as close to hell as you'll ever come. But he's also saying to an unbelieving, unregenerate world, this is the closest to heaven you'll ever come. He says, if this is the suffering that you're facing, you cannot fathom the eternal wrath that awaits the lost. That's what he's saying. I wish I could make you feel better about it, but that's what he's saying. You cannot imagine eternity without God. You cannot imagine an eternity absent his presence. You cannot imagine eternity burning forever, suffering forever, wishing you had another chance forever. There is no rest in hell, no peace in hell. If you didn't want God on this side of eternity, why would he force you into his presence forever? Hell is the culmination of the will of man. God ultimately gives man what he's wanted all along, control and to be his own God and his own master. But you without him is hell forever. Scripture says judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Starts with you. I know that sounds heavy, but it's actually beautiful. Because as every born again Christian, you will not stand before God's judgment for sin. When you stand before the maker of heaven and earth, your judgment is real, but it's not for sin. You know why? Because your sin has already been dealt with. 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary, the Son of God took on the sin and the iniquities of the world. And he who knew no sin became our sin that we might be called the righteousness of God in him. God treated his son like a sinner so that he could treat sinners like his sons. On that day of judgment, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We will be judged, but not for our sins, 
we'll be judged or rewarded according to our obedience to his call here and now. We'll be judged or rewarded according to the motive of our heart here and now. But make, make no mistake about it. If you are not marked by the blood of Jesus, you will stand before a holy God condemned. And the Bible says what a terrible thing it is to fall into the hands of an angry God. That's your, that's your Bible. Hear me. It is God's will that not one of you would perish. It is his will that every one of you would be saved and experience eternal life in him. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but find life everlasting. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that the heaven is open to every whosoever would receive him. Not the religious, not the perfect, not the sinless, just the whosoever. Because I'm a whosoever, and so are you. If you're in this room today and you're not right with God, make things right with him now. Pray with me all over this place. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We repent of our sin. We acknowledge the error of our ways. We ask you for mercy. Our life has been marked by lust, pride, greed, and selfish ambition. We've loved the things created more than the creator himself. God, have mercy. Have mercy. But today we believe that when we were dead in our sin and lost in our trespasses, you were rich in mercy towards us. You sent your son to die on the cross to take away the sins of the world. He was sinless and perfect. He died and was buried. And on the third day, he triumphed over death, hell, and the grave. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And today I place my faith in him. Today, Lord, I give you my past, my present, my future. All that I am is yours. Change my heart. Help me to love what you love and despise what you despise. Give me your attitude, your heart, your mind, that in this world, I would separate from sin and be a light in the darkness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Hey, if you enjoyed today's podcast, click that subscribe button, share this podcast on social, or even take a screenshot from your story and tag us. We'd love to hear how the Lord is using this podcast to bless your life. You can send an email to info at visionchurch.com, or you can DM us on social with a story of how God is moving in your world. Also, we'd like to thank those who invest in our ministry financially because of your sacrifice that we are able to publish this every week. If you'd like to join in giving to our ministry, you can click the link in the description or visit visionchurch.com and click the Give tab. Thanks again for listening. God bless.